first reading this evening is taken from 2 Samuel 7, um, which can be found on page 311. Two Samuel seven, starting from verse eight, which can be found on page three hundred and eleven. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home uh, of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build uh, build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong... I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The second reading is Psalm 13, um, which can be found on page 548. Psalm 13, page 548. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fail. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Will. So much. And do, do keep that um, page open, 548, Psalm 13, is, um, is the final psalm we're looking at in this little series. I think it's been a really good series. I think I found it really helpful myself, and I think a number of others have. These little songs are songs for peculiar and particular moments in life, and they give us a, some lyrics which we may want to echo in our own hearts, and Psalm 13 is no different. Um, I'm going to pray. I need God's help, and so do you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd give me the tongue of one who has been taught. And I pray that you'd give the rest of us ears which are eager to hear and hearts which are soft 
to be molded by your spirit. For Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Uh, it's difficult when our expectations exceed our experience in life, when maybe promises have been made to us that just fall short of our present-day reality. Um, it's a bit like, have you ever received a check which is post-dated? I remember as a teenager receiving one of those, and it's just great but frustrating because it's just there, a bit of paper. I cannot cash it in. It's not going to translate into some... Uh, greenbacks in my hand until that date comes and it makes me ask how long but it's hard when our expectations outstrip our current everyday experience and that's a problem out there outside the church particularly in many of our generation 20s and 30s and the generation beneath us who seem to be coming through with increasingly high expectations of life Uh, the world is our oyster we're told and uh, pursue your dreams, and uh, you'll be happy. And increasingly, it's leading to discontentment in our generation and the teenage generation at the moment, and that's a problem. But interestingly, in this psalm here, Psalm 13, that kind of disconnect between expectations and everyday experience is to be a hallmark of God's people, a good thing that we would expect to find amongst us. Because if we're a Christian, I take it that our expectations are chiefly molded by God's promises to us, his many and varied promises to us in Scripture. And quite often, if you're anything like me, his promises that I read in my quiet time tomorrow morning lead me to be excited about the day to come, and yet there's something of a disconnect when I walk out the front door on a Monday morning and I discover that life is really rather humdrum compared to that promise that I've just read. Have you experienced that? And this psalm models a song we can sing at those times so that that disconnect doesn't boil over into um, cynicism or disappointment. It boils over, in fact, verse 6, into praise. And wouldn't that be a great thing? It teaches us to sing in the midst of sorrow. And our first two headings, if you're taking notes, Um, are the kind of foundation for the third heading. And all of the application is at the the back of of the talk. So hang in tight and it'll come. And it'll be quite a lot at the end. First heading, when God's promises look like they fail, verses uh, 1 to 4. As ever, it's not rocket science. Um, The best place to start is at the very beginning. And by the beginning, I really do mean the beginning. Um, For the director of music, so Timo, are you listening? Uh, For the director of music, this is a psalm of David. And in fact, I might want to say to the whole congregation, this is a psalm of David. It's a psalm written by and written for King David, who is the king of Israel for a number of years, one of the preeminent kings in the Old Testament. I counted up the number of words this psalm has in it in our English translation. It's 105 words. It's very short. And of those 105 words, 18 of them are first-person pronouns. That is I, me, and my. So it's an intensely personal psalm to David. It's packed full of things which have happened to him and things which he has done. And therefore, to listen to this psalm carefully means that we will hear David singing it first and foremost. And as we listen in to him singing it, my prayer is that we will pick up the tune. But first and foremost... Timo, 
It's a psalm of David. Everyone needs to know that. Okay, and as we listen to David singing this song, there's a a refrain which is easy to pick up in the first few verses. How long? Uh, It's there twice in verse 1 and twice in verse 2. How long? And the very repetition of that phrase, how long, enables us to feel the truth of which it speaks. I wonder if you felt that as, as Will read it. How long? How long? How long? How long? It makes us think, when is this going to stop? And that's part of the majesty of the poetry here. And David is in a situation which he's wishing would finish. He wishes he could reach for a a remote control on his life and press the fast-forward button, as we might do on our skybox. Or or he's at least hoping for a taskbar, so he knows how far through this ordeal he is. How long, O Lord? And he describes his situation, his distress, in quite literally three dimensions. Uh, Verse 1, his distress in relation to God. Beginning of verse 2, his distress in relation to himself, deep down inside. And the end of verse 2, in relation to his enemies. And each one of those dimensions is speaking of the same experience. It's a three-dimensional description of that experience. Verse 1, let's unpack it. He feels forgotten by God and all alone. If you've ever read Job, there is a lot in Job's experience which chimes with this. Let me quote a little bit from Job. Job says this, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me all alone. Or oh that I were as in months of old when the friendship of God was upon my tent. He's all alone. And he says God has hidden his face from him. You'll find that's a turn of phrase often found through the Old Testament and sometimes in the New. And it's very uh, emotionally charged. I wonder if um, any of us use FaceTime, that Apple software. Many of us do if you have relatives abroad or friends. It's a great thing, the face. It's better than phone time, FaceTime, because uh, we turn our faces towards people whom we want to bless and whom we want to show goodness towards and friendship towards. And and that's what's going on in this little phrase. God turns his face towards people whom he blesses and away from people whom he doesn't bless. You may know Aaron's blessing, famous words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And here David, King David, feels the absence of God's face. In other words, the absence of God's blessing and graciousness and keeping and protection. And he's desperately alone. And this affects him deeply on the inside, as many of us might know personally. Beginning of verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? thinking about this um, this last week and in a sense it's easy when our problems are external to us because then we can escape them sometimes geographically escape them you can escape the neighbor from hell just by moving house Uh, you can escape the boss that you find stressful by going on holiday and we just get away from it all as we say but when the problem is internal to us it sticks. 
Because whilst I can escape anyone else, I cannot escape myself. And that is David's predicament right here. He describes his thoughts evocatively as an Olympic wrestler. So that at the very moments when he switches his light off just before bed or the moment he's winding down with a cup of tea, smooth classics at seven on Classic FM, he finds the Olympic wrestler of his thoughts there. And even in those settings, he cannot relax. He's plagued by these depressing and dark thoughts. Has God abandoned me? I wonder if you've ever been there. And he fears that God's abandoned him because, end of verse 2, his enemies are triumphing over him. How long will my enemy triumph over me, he cries. At verse 3, they want him to die, it's life and death, and thereby to overcome him, verse 4. This is David's sorrowful song. He's singing at a time when God's promises to him just seem to have fallen short and been shown to be empty. And it utterly depresses him. And we don't know exactly the context within which David wrote this psalm historically. It's one of the things we have to guess with the psalms. But it could fit with the time, you may know it, in 2 Samuel 15 and 16, when Absalom, David's son, is trying to violently rip the throne from him. And he feels all alone. He's uh, thrown out of his own kingdom. And, and he, th- he thinks back, as it were, to those promises Will read to us from 2 Samuel 7. And he, and he thinks, has God abandoned me? These promises just aren't holding true. Let me just walk us through some of them. Uh, God promised that he would be with him, whereas now God's face is hidden from him. He promised rest from defeat of all of his enemies, and yet here they are triumphing over him. He promised his kingdom and throne would be established forever. And yet here, the only forever thing is God's forgetting of him. And he reads that list of promises to Samuel 7, and it throws him into some bouts of depression. It's like God had talked a good game, but failed to come up with the goods. Like God did the estate agent thing and talked big, but couldn't deliver. And he wasn't the only one of God's kings to face that problem. There was one king, much loved by us, who was promised victory and protection, God's personal presence with him, anointing of him, and even glory. And yet it looked like God the Father's promises to him had failed, that he was left all alone in the wilderness to face temptation of his enemy, of the, capital E, enemy, who was left wrestling with his thoughts in a garden just outside Jerusalem, who was so sorrowful in his heart that we're told he was sorrowful even unto death, whose enemies really did triumph over him with their cruel apparatus of thorns and purple robes and spear and hammer and nails and cross. And who at the last is bewildered by the difference between God the Father's promises to him and his present everyday reality, that 3 p.m. that afternoon. And he doesn't cry out how long, although he could have done. He cries out, why? Eloi, Eloi, lamath sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Incidentally, um, 
many people in the world, and maybe us too, if they have really suffered deeply, if we have, then we get really very put off by glib answers to suffering in the world. And some Christians can be guilty of giving quite a shallow answer if people come with the the difficult questions of suffering. And often that can be a a cause of people actually steering clear of, of Christianity. But isn't it great, and we'll think more about this at the end, but isn't it great that as Christians we have a Lord and a Savior who asks the question, why? I heard someone else say that a few months ago. It really stuck with me. He doesn't give us glib and shallow answers to suffering. He deals with suffering deeply as he experiences it. He says, why? So, uh, when God's promises look like they fail, second heading, trust in God's unfailing love. Trust in God's unfailing love from verses 5 to 6. The sea change comes in verse 5. I wonder if you spotted that with three precious but simple words, but I trust, but I trust. And of the 18 first-person pronouns in this psalm, all of them prior to this point are passive. So things have been done to him up until verse 5. He's been forgotten, hidden from, wrestled with, had sorrow, been triumphed over, But in verse 5, he decides to do something actively. And it proves to be the turning point. I think that's quite profound. He becomes the subject of his actions. I imagine that he's still in the middle of his thought wrestling, the thought scuffle that he's in with the Olympic wrestler of his thoughts. But in the midst of that battle, he lunges for, I have an image of my mind of him lunging for something, which had always been there all the way through that battle. And he takes hold of it. In fact, it takes hold of him. He says, I trust in your unfailing love. He reaches for the Lord's unfailing love. I love that translation of the word there, unfailing love. I love that it's defined by what it is not. It's God's anti-fail love. It could have been translated God's dependable love. I suppose it would have carried the same meaning. But this translation suggests that David was worried it would fail, as many of us would be in that situation. And he says, no, I was worried it would, but it didn't, you know. It never does. It is unfailing. It is anti-fail. It's consistent, enduring, no sell-by date, no half-life love, because it has no life expectancy love. It's eternity guaranteed love, no warranty needed love, always there love. It's unfailing. And he trusts it. Last couple of days I've been with um, my nephew and my niece in Cambridge. And and Joseph, my nephew, is three and he's full of life. And he occasionally just throws himself into your arms. And it alarms me how much trust he has in me to catch him. But that's the image of David here. He throws himself uh, into the arms of God the Father. And he says, I trust your ability to catch me. I trust your unfailing love. And despite the gap between the promises he's received and his present-day disappointing reality, he trusts God's unfailing love. God feels distant. I trust your unfailing love, he says. Uh, God, God puts sorrow in his heart. I trust your unfailing love. Enemies at the front door. 
I trust your unfailing love, he says. And then did you see what followed that leap of trust? I can only describe it as a sort of a carnival which he finds himself in, which gets pulled on behind. He decides to trust. It's a hard decision. He doesn't feel like it. But soon he's engulfed in joy. Trusting in God's anti-fail love brings behind it heartfelt rejoicing in God's salvation. And behind that, as you look at the carnival train, there's a song. Who would have thought that he'd be singing a moment ago? He was full of sighs and depression and darkness, and yet here he is singing. And David was a great poet. He wrote elaborate poetry. Many of the Psalms are his. But in the midst of depression, as many of us might know, the poet's pen doesn't work quite as eloquently as we would like. And David doesn't write an eloquent song here. It is short, it is pithy, it is simple. In the midst of the darkness, he looks down on the page and arcing across that page, his hand is writing something. And it's this. It's God has been good to me. That's what he's holding on to. That's his song. For he has been good to me. And I like to imagine him thinking back to 2 Samuel 7 and those promises and saying, no, God has been good to me. He's made those promises. He doesn't lie. I trust that. Looking back at the last few years, even the experience of his expulsion from Israel under his son Absalom, no, even there, God has been good to me. That will be my song. And our Lord Jesus Christ exhibited the same but a perfect trust in his heavenly father at his darkest moment. I've been struck by this. Even his cry of dereliction and distress on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know where that comes from? It's from Psalm 22, verse 1. So even as he asks the why question, he asks it in faith. He's quoting scripture at the time he feels most distanced from his father God. And at the end of his ordeal on the cross, this king says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And that's a quote from Psalm 31. Now, so far, we haven't applied any of this to us. That's coming in just a moment. But it's just worth noting on the way that sometimes trust in God looks like being honest about our confusion in the midst of the suffering. Sometimes our prayer life will look like why and how. And that's okay. Third point, this is where all the application is, singing in the midst of our sorrow. Having listened to the two kings, David and Jesus Christ, sing this psalm, uh, I want us to pick up the tune a little bit and be able to sing it uh, ourselves. I'm going to make three um, observations. The first one is this. This is a song to sing in response to God's promises, not in response to our thwarted dreams. There's an illness which... uh, is creeping, has crept into much of the national and worldwide church, and you might call it MTD. I've heard this from someone else, and I think it's true. MTD. It's a danger for us at St. Michael's. And it's this moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, church and Christianity becomes all about just becoming a better person, respectable citizen, and nothing to do with Jesus Christ, his grace and his forgiveness. Moralistic. Therapeutic, church becomes a place where I feel better about myself. 
It's a danger. Deism. God is kept at a comfortable distance from me. Now, I want to focus on the T with this psalm, therapeutic. I think there can be a real danger with psalms like this that we treat it as therapy wrongly. And it goes like this. The ingredients you'll need, very simply, you'll just need one thing, and it's a thwarted dream. Be different for each one of us. Maybe I want to get married, or I want to have children, or I want to get healthy, and I've been ill, or I want to get wealthy, and I'm poor, or some thwarted dream, you know what I'm saying. And and the way it works is we read this psalm with that thwarted dream in the back of our minds, and we pray it with that in mind. And we say, how long, O Lord, before I could find a husband, or get this much in my bank account? And it sounds spiritual and even godly, but it's a wrong use of the psalm. You see, the context here is of God's promises being taken by David and him saying, how long will it take you to fulfill those promises? Not his thwarted dreams. So the correct use of the psalm would be something like someone struggling with depression here, and there will be people here who struggle with depression, saying, in the midst of the darkness, Lord, there's a promise you've made that there'll be joy in suffering. How long? Please come and fulfill that. Or taking his promise that he would use our words and our witness so that other people would come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps this person has been at work and there's no fruit for years. It'd be a great psalm to to sing and to pray and to say, how long, O Lord, please fulfill your promise along that line. Or for the the Christian being persecuted in Syria, waiting for the knock on the door from ISIS, the fear of being beheaded, very real, taking the promise that actually life with Jesus Christ is life to the full and that his love is stronger than death. This would be a great psalm for them to pray and to sing. How long, O Lord? That's the first observation. Second one is this. Feeling despair like David does here and Jesus does later is okay. It's okay. I've been thinking this week, it's great to have in this book a load of God's promises. I love them, and I bet you do too. But wouldn't it be terrible if all we had in this book were God's promises? If all we had in this book were God's promises, I think we would struggle with disillusionment. We'd read them and then walk out of our front doors and say, oh my goodness, there's a disconnect here which I cannot cope with. But isn't it great that in God's word here, places like Psalm 13, he gives us not just the promise, but he gives us how to cope with the disconnect. To say it's okay when we walk out the front door and we don't see the promises uh, on the sleeve of the universe. He says that's okay. Uh, Saying, if in our prayer lives we've ever felt so broken and so at rock bottom that we couldn't pray anything eloquent, we'd be nervous to pray out loud at an altogether Tuesday, but all we've got coming out is how long or why. This psalm says that's okay. In fact, it's so okay that Christ had that as his experience. You know, we often say from the pulpit that actually to, to follow Christ means bearing our cross and following him. That is true. But what does it look like to bear our cross? Well, it will mean cost, of course, personal cost. But I think it may sometimes mean confusion. Jesus on the cross experienced a godly confusion as he was cut off from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And sometimes as Christians, we are called to confusion, and that is a mark of godliness. We look at the promises, we look at reality, and we say, how do I cope with this? And we just say, why? We just say, how? And this psalm says, that's okay. Third and final observation. This kind of despair is never wasted by God. Of course, when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords sung this psalm with his life, it looked like a failure. And that as the cries from the crowd moved from crucify him to save yourself, and as those limp bodies were taken off those crosses, and as that gaggle of teasing people, spectators, just went home from Golgotha, and as the apostles thought they'd backed the wrong horse and lay quivering behind locked doors, and as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was killed, it looked like a failure. It looked like the most monumental waste of divine blood, did it not? No one realized that the answer to the how long question was going to be seen on the Sunday morning as the women ran to the empty tomb and found it to be empty, just the grave clothes, as Mary went to the garden and spoke to the gardener and discovered he was her Lord and Master. How long, O oh Lord? Well, Jesus has answered that question. He is raised physically from the dead. And I just want to say to us that if God doesn't waste that kind of suffering that his King of Kings experienced, if he used that defeat as a triumph, which he did, then the similar kind of suffering, to a lesser extent, that we may be experiencing, the similar kind of depression and distress, it's not wasted because God is well able to use these tools of darkness to his own ends. I hope that's an encouragement to you, as it has been to me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be utterly honest with you in our prayer lives, in our singing, as David was, and we can cry out as we feel maybe, how long? Why? Thank you that you hear those prayers, that they're okay prayers to pray, okay things to feel. And I pray for any here who really feel that verses 1 to 4 are their song at the moment. And I pray for them, I pray for us, that you would move us to verse 5. That we would be those who are enabled to throw ourselves with abandon into your arms and say, I trust in your unfailing love. And then would you graciously lead us into that carnival of rejoicing in your salvation and even singing. For you have been good to us and we trust you. Amen.